James, Soundness of Soul from the Inside Out. This is part 12. Knowing where our biggest problems really come from. And that is the issue that James wants to address. He, he, what, what causes? Where do these things come from? We think we know, and James is going to tell us we probably don't know. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions, there it is, are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Because we have to figure out what that's all about. He's writing to a church. Is James actually saying these people walk into church on Sunday morning and, and they shoot each other? Is that what he means? These Christian people. It's an interesting it's an interesting question. This is a tough text. I felt divine providence uh, kind of slapping me in the face the first Sunday back, and we've got probably the toughest text in the book of James. So tr- do your best to stay alert. You covet and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So he says, you do not ask. And then the next two words, you ask and do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is the heart. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, this is the desire level. Whoever wishes, this is is what brings satisfaction, the things of the world. This is where I like it. This is what I want. If that's what you're wishing for, then you make yourself an enemy of God. It's not something intentional. You said, I really like, I like this. And in, and in desiring that, I, I automatically default and I make myself an enemy of God. Striking. And then these tricky words, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That's a hard verse. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says... God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus. None of us is just smart enough when we come to your word. We we have so much in our hearts that needs to be undone by your Holy Spirit if we will properly hear divine truth. And if we haven't prayed so already, come and just wash us clean as we bow our hearts before you. Help us to be sharp and alert in our heeding of God's word, because that's life, life itself. So bless your church in these next few moments. In your name I pray, amen. I lied, it's going to be more than a few moments. There's several places where James introduces a new slice in his letter, a new topic, a new segment, 214. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works. And so he starts it with a question. He does it again in chapter 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And now today's text. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So our text, I doubt that you remember over a month ago, our text in our last teaching ended with words sounding a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus pronounced this special blessing on peacemakers. You know those words. Blessed are the peacemakers. And in our last verse of study, James said, 3.18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if there is a special blessing for peacemakers pronounced by Jesus and then pronounced by James in chapter 3, verse 18. The first verse of our text today, it kind of fleshes out exactly why James' encouragement to peacemaking was so urgently needed among these scattered Christians. 4-1, what, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? So, there's, see, here's the anti-peace, the opposite of peace. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. So there were quarrels and there were fights among these believers. He's not writing to atheists. He's writing to these scattered churches. They're scattered because of the persecution of the Christian faith. Of course, we'd all like to believe, even when we go and take the trouble to make peace with someone, we'd still like to believe quietly in our hearts that that the strife and the division was the other person's fault. And praise God, we just happen to be holy enough to want to go and make things right. James won't let us rest with that conclusion. He says the the DNA of quarrels and fights, it, it runs like this river through our fallen human hearts. This is how James investigates where where ungodly wisdom, the kind that starts fights and quarrels, that fractures relationships, marriages, churches, where does that come from? And James says the problem runs deep in every one of us. It's no use to point fingers at someone else. So if I'm going to grow in the pure, meek, soul-nourishing wisdom of God, it's not going to be easy. Religious poems on the wall and flowery promise boxes aren't going to cut it. There is much to be undone, much to be dealt with in my heart, in your heart. There's a lot of deep self-analysis. It takes a lot of honesty to come to this text today in a church service. I hope you're ready for it. Point number one. The need to scrap and quarrel and fight is born in the spiritual emptiness of an unsatisfied heart. Look at it in verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You, you, you covet and cannot obtain. So, now there's the reason. Here's the root. So you fight and quarrel. That's, that's where fighting and quarreling 
comes from. That's not true when I fight and quarrel. When I fight and quarrel, it's because I'm right. And everyone else is wrong. That's the way we'd like to think of it. We all like to think we quarrel, we fight. We don't even use those words. We actually call it standing up for rights. Pursuing justice. We think we do it because we're right. James says we do it because we're empty. There's a big difference between those two things. Note the careful wording of verse 1. The things happening among them. The quarrels and the fights. They come from things happening within them. What's happening among them comes from what's happening within them. The passions that are at war and are unsatisfied. This is so important. We think, we think dissension, arguments, division, fights. We think those things come from external circumstances. Someone said this. Someone did this to me. Someone said that about me. Someone took what belonged to me. Someone hurt my feelings. Someone said something about me that wasn't true. There, that's the cause of the problem. Out there. James says, no, Don, those are only the triggers to the problem. They're not the source. Quarrels come from an inner spiritual battle, an inner spiritual need, the passions that war within. See that word, within? There's among and there's within. Not everyone thinks the way I do. That is the root of diversity. I want my rights honored and validated. That is the root of division. Those are two different things. Your passions are at war within you, for one. Not all the time, of course. There are situations that, that set things up. There are situations that, that awaken the conflict of passions. I'm entitled to something, and I'm not getting it. I was hurt, and I didn't deserve it. I wanted something and had to wait too long, maybe from God, to get it. I did something great, and no one thanked me for it. James says, I have passions that live inside me. So do you, by the way. And they don't like it when those situations take place. We all are like that. Something inside of us starts to bristle at these situations. An inward reaction kind of gets set into motion. And all of those inward passions, when set into motion, they have, they have enormous power in all of our hearts because they always feel right. They scream for satisfaction, for revenge, 
for striking back. And the reason we give in is because they always feel like justice when we feel them. They always feel like justice. So much so that we allow ourselves to be dragged along by them because we become convinced that we will find satisfaction. We will find fulfillment if we cater to those passions. What we don't usually realize is those passions are against us, not for us. They're self-destructive, not fulfilling. They appear fulfilling initially, always. But they're soul-emptying. Look what Paul says about these passions in Galatians 5, 17. The desires of the flesh. Now, when you see those words, I appreciated Alan's announcement, but when you see the desires of the flesh, do you just think of sexual desire, pornography? Is that, is that what comes to your mind? Because he's not just talking about that. Just, just anything, that, anything that puts self in the driver's seat. Anything that exalts my agenda, the way I look at things, which is the way everyone should look at things. Those are the desires of the flesh. And he says they're against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other. And look at this sentence, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's a weird sentence. You would think doing what we want you would think acting on our desires. Would, would not acting on our desires give us what we want? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. What strange words. You'd think giving in to desires would be exactly what we want to do. We need to think about that. There's a, there's a yes and a no in these words from Paul. So in one sense, these passions at war in the heart, they lead me to do exactly what I want to do, at least what I want to do right then and there. But in a deeper sense, usually discovered too late, these passions keep me from doing what I would want to do if I were just thinking clearly, if I were just thinking biblically, if I were just taking the lordship of Jesus and the life of the Holy Spirit into account. In that ultimate sense, these passions, these desires of the flesh, they keep me from doing what I would truly want to do if I were thinking of my ultimate good and my walk with Christ. Peter Speaks about the very same issue. So we start with James. We look at Paul. Now look at Peter. He's saying the same thing in different words. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Look what he says here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Same, same thing exactly. And then he says, which wage war against your soul. which are against your soul. There's the same idea again in different words. Peter 
comes to the same conclusion, the same caution. These, these passions don't just war against each other, as James points out. The ultimate target is you. Peter says they are against your soul. Right there. Your soul is you. Your, your, your joy, your satisfaction, your contentment, your best possible future, your deepest well-being. When you cater to selfish desires in your own heart, you're warring against all of those things. The problem is these desires don't feel against your own inner good when they first start to tug and heat up in your heart. And so Peter tells us to remember this because while, while the battle with these passions of the heart rages, you don't feel they're against you at all. They, they, feel, like, they feel like they are on your side, out for your rights, out for your vindication, out for your pleasure, out for your fulfillment. But, says Peter, in reality, no, they're warring against you. They attack like terrorists. They work from the inside. You don't see them coming. And they destroy your soul. Okay, point number two. Inward passions, when yielded to, increase both the emptiness of the soul and the addiction to future sin and bondage. Look at James, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. He says, you desire, do not have. And then these words. We've got to figure this out. So you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Well, we can imagine that, probably. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions. Your, your, your life is geared to setting your own agenda in whatever circumstances you find yourself. Your life is geared to setting your own agenda, and you can't pray and ask God to come and help you with your agenda. That won't work. Praying is yielding my heart to God's agenda. That's what he's saying. Notice how these verses begin, 2 and 3. And they end with this emphasis on desire. You desire and do not have. And then at the end of verse 3, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Desires, passions, they frame everything else that James says in these two verses. The hard part is those words. You desire, you do not have. Look at verse 2. We can't pretend they're not there. You desire... You do not have, so you murder. This is to the church. To Christians. To Christians like this. You may get out of service today. You'll walk to your car, especially if you had to park on that side, and you're, you know, it's a bit muddy, and you're walking through there, and you're coming up to the car beside you, and someone opens their door, and it, and it, and it, nudges your new Mercedes. I'd be really surprised if I heard tonight 
that somebody nudged someone's new Mercedes with the door, and so the Mercedes owner shot him in the parking lot. Wouldn't you? Does that not seem a little extreme? And so here he writes to this church. You desire, you don't have, so you murder. Was James actually saying these Christians in these churches were killing each other? And if not, then what's with that really violent term? Now, there's nothing in the passage to make such a statement impossible. I mean, I mean, these Christians could have been so violently opposed to one another in the church that some of them were killing each other. I still find that a stretch. If you can interpret it that way. I'm just giving you my opinion. If that were the case... It seems strange to me that James wouldn't say more about it than he does. So you murder. Three words? That's it? That's all James has to say about these Christians killing each other in the church. No further condemnation for taking of human life. Nothing else said about it. It doesn't seem likely to me. I think what James is doing here is showing the the end result of a truth that he set out in chapter 3, verse 16. You can look at it, and I'll read it to you. In 3.16, James said, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And now, in our text today, James specifically talks about murder because it's, it's on the extreme end of what selfish ambition and jealousy can produce. After a certain point, here's what he's saying, once desires win the war within your soul, you aren't in charge anymore of where that kind of moral corruption is going to stop. You lose the ability to define the stopping point of the moral deterioration of your own heart once you start giving in to the inclinations of self-indulgence. That's James' point. You no longer draw the lines of what you would do and what you wouldn't do. You get dragged farther than you thought it was possible. Quite literally, 316, every evil practice can spring up. That's what James said. And he uses the sin of murder to show, I want you to see how far this can go. No doubt, James has in mind what he heard family member Jesus say at one point in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Do you remember these words from Jesus? You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry. Why does he start talking about anger? He wants us to see the link between this and this. Everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
I talk to Christians who sometimes think Jesus is saying, if you ever use the word fool, that's it, you're going to hell. And that, that's not what this is about. What Jesus is doing is he's showing how this kind of insult, this kind of anger, and this kind of murder all come from hearts that yield more and more to in, inward inclinations. And the same heart that yields to unkind words, if left unchecked, and that just starts to grow and ferment in the heart. It will say unkind things. It will wish evil things. It's the same kind of heart that can take a life. Jesus is saying there's a, there's a, there's a linkage in all of these things that you need to understand. That's what James meant when he said, where you find jealousy and selfish ambition, I'll tell you what else you'll find. And he says, literally, every evil practice grows there. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Like computer software, hatred, anger, murder, they're bundle sins. Get them all together. You aren't safe from the outward expressions unless you deal with the passions in the heart, the pride in the heart, the personal agenda in the heart, the ambition in the heart. Chapter 4, 2, and 3. You desire, do not have. You murder. You covet, you cannot obtain. You fight, you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Okay? Because you do not ask. And then he says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You do not have because you do not ask. That doesn't mean, by the way, just pray and God will give you everything you want. James makes that clear when he says you ask and don't receive. Okay? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. A lot of people have trouble with those verses. But they have, they have profound truth tucked into them. James is describing what makes us quarrel and fight for our way. The passions that are at war within us. That... that drain our inner joy the more we accommodate them. So you can see that in these very words that he chooses. You desire and do not have. You don't get it. You don't have it. You covet. You, you cannot obtain. You're still empty. You fight and quarrel. You do not have. So, so selfish ambition, bitterness, desire, self-vindication, the setting forth of my own agenda for securing and satisfying my heart that will always leave the soul empty and unfed. He warns us, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So you, you can't mix. You can't mix calling on God and fulfilling your own selfish ambitions. You, you can't drag God into your agenda. He won't respond on those terms. Point three. How people reject God while thinking nothing but loving thoughts toward him. That's what I really wanted to talk about. It's in four, four, and five. And here's the phrase. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
When he says, do you not know, he means you, you don't know this. You don't, you don't get this. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself. This isn't something God does. Makes himself an enemy of God. And then these words, which I hope we get to. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? You adulterous people, we should know something is up. I don't know if you've noticed. We haven't been in James for a little bit. He talks very nicely to these people. In chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. Chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality. Chapter 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers? Chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Chapter 3, verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And then all of a sudden, you adulterous people. What is happening here? Is James just finally losing his patience? Is, is, is he just blowing up? Or does he have a reason for choosing that term? And I think he does. I think he does. James uses these words with a purpose. They aren't temper. They're thought through. There's an application here. Actually, James uses the feminine form of the word, adulteress, although only the NASB actually catches that. So James is picking up a whole idea from a cluster of Old Testament texts that, that sort of frame the unfaithfulness of God's people toward him in the picture of a bride who was unfaithful to her husband. Just an example. There's dozens of verses. It would be something like this. You don't have to look it up. Jeremiah 3.20. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. Okay, that's the idea. That's the idea. And James is pouncing on that idea. It's a perfect image for James teaching on holiness and these scattered Christians. He wants them... He wants them to, to, to come to understand the kind of faithfulness God wants from his people. How does God want you to live for him? Here we are. We're not in James' day. So here we are at Cedarview Community Church, and we're kind of starting the fall season. And how, how devoted does God want you to be to him? How should it manifest itself? My wife could be, she could be unfaithful to me, an adulteress. She could be unfaithful to me even though she may love everything about me. Is that not true? I mean, I mean she, she may like my good character. She may enjoy being in our house. She may love our children. She may think I'm a, a nice man. I'm a good husband. But if she sleeps with someone else once a week... She, she denies her relationship. Listen, 
She denies her relationship to me even though she may not have had a bad thing to say about me. Correct? She may sing my praises. She might even think I'm a decent preacher. She may still want to be my wife. That's James' point. These fighting, quarreling, self-motivated, proud, life-on-their-own-terms Christians needed to hear James call them adulteresses because... Because they didn't see themselves as denying God at all. They weren't saying a bad thing about him. They were in the church. They were religious people. They still prayed. James says so right in our text. You ask. They worshipped. They sang their songs. Just like we did this morning. But James says their adulterous state didn't come from denying God. It came from friendship with the world. Boy, I hope I can make you see that this morning. You don't have to deny Jesus a hoot to be unfaithful. It's it's loving the world makes himself an enemy of God. James has just spent three verses describing how these Christians have been pursuing their own selfish ways, and now he tells them the result. They make themselves enemies of God. Whether they think of themselves as such or not doesn't matter. And then he says... Here's the hard part. Or do you suppose, verse 5, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I want to show you something. That's the same verse in three different translations. Read the top one with me. Let's do it out loud. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? Okay, notice, before we move on, the the envying here is done by whom? It's the Spirit, right? The Spirit in us does the envying. We're all agreed? I'm not trying to trick you or anything else. Okay, let's read NASB. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, quote, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Who jealously desires in that one? It's God, right? It's God. Not Spirit, small s, like in the NIV. It's, it's God. Okay, let's do the ESV at the bottom. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, quote, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Who yearns jealously in that one? Okay. The difficulty in this text comes from two things. First, the quotation that James cites, that's why I said quote when we were reading. There's a problem. Because the quotation that James cites from the scriptures, it doesn't exist anywhere in the Old Testament. I want to show you why I don't think you need to be upset by that. And second, you can note, especially when the NIV is compared to the other two translations, that the subject of James' quotation is different. The New American Standard and the English Standard have God as the one who is jealous over us, and the NIV has our own human spirit. No wonder preachers never preach from that text. We need to look at those two issues quickly. First, the fact that we can't find James' quotation anywhere in the Old Testament shouldn't be at all alarming. There are many times when a common Old Testament theme is, is sort of simplified, paraphrased, and used as a lens for some New Testament teaching. Let me give you a great example from the words of Jesus. John seven thirty eight. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow liver, livers, yeah, rivers of living water. Livers of living water is even different. So out of his being will flow rivers of living water. That's from Jesus, right? Now, those words are not an exact quote from any Old Testament passage. It's not in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus says, as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus takes what is a very Old Testament, a common Old Testament picture of the Holy Spirit as water, streams, life-giving. It's all through the Psalms. And he puts it all together, describing the refreshing work of the New like the Old Testament teaches that's what James is doing. The second issue is who's the jealous party? And I go with the ESV and the New American Standard. For sure I do, simply because of the way James talks about these people and their unfaithfulness, like, like they're adulteresses. And so it would just make sense that it's the husband, God, who is jealous over the faithfulness and the return. Why did God create marriage? We do lots of seminars on how to have a good marriage. I'm not talking about that. Why is there marriage in the first place? Think about it. I mean, people could. I'm sorry to be a little crass on a Sunday morning. People can reproduce without marriage, right? We could, we, could, we could replenish the earth, as long as you got the genders straight. <laughs> there are issues otherwise, but I'm not going into that right now. 
We could replenish the earth. We could be nice people. Could we not be nice people? I think we could. Could we pray? And sing worship songs? Couldn't we? Could we go to church? Why did God create marriage? Why did he make it such a pure, monogamist, exclusive relationship? Chickens and cows don't marry. Why just one spouse? You ever ask yourself that? Why not two or three? God could have set it up that way. Why does Jesus say quite specifically the two shall become one flesh? And I want to tell you something that may shock you. There's only one reason God created marriage. One reason. The unbelievable truth is God created marriage, and Paul teaches this, God created marriage just so we could have a visible, concrete pattern of the kind of devotion he wanted from us. God created marriage just so we could have children without marriage. He created marriage just so we could have a visible, concrete pattern of the kind of devotion he wanted from us. He created marriage so we could learn marriage language. We could know vividly what adultery is. There's no such thing as adultery without marriage. Agreed? We could know, God created marriage so we could know that partial devotion to him isn't devotion at all. If my wife says, overall, I'm faithful to you, it's just occasionally that I'm with someone else. For the most part, I'm faithful. Well, because we have marriage, because we have the creation of marriage, I know that if my wife is unfaithful to me, she can't just be a little bit unfaithful, right? A little bit unfaithful breaks the whole principle of marriage. That's why God created marriage. It shows how we are faithful to him with no adultery. No adultery in the relationship. He who makes himself a friend of the world without ever denying anything makes himself an enemy of God. You can't just be a sort of Christian. That's why God created marriage. And so we live in a world where all sorts of people know the pain of someone who has been unfaithful to marriage vows. What we're not good at doing is translating that into, that is how God feels when I'm just occasionally unfaithful to him. Is everybody tracking with me on this? 
the last point. I'm sorry. Someone said, don't say you're sorry. Okay, I'm sorry for saying I'm sorry. So that's the idea. Marital faithfulness can't just be overall faithful. It has to be specifically, concretely, absolutely, constantly, 100% faithful. That's what marriage means. And that's what God wants in our walk with him. Four. I wanted to end this way. That's a very demanding text. I didn't, I didn't feel honestly that it would do us any good to water it down or pretend it didn't say that. That's why I took the time and put the words on the screen. I'm not making this up. Four, there is grace not only to cleanse from sin, but to keep the heart from falling. But he gives, everybody in the building should just say praise the Lord that that word is there. How much grace? More. It's just more. Whenever you preach so strongly about sin and purity, I feel exactly the way you feel. And it's easy to leave church just thinking, what in the world is the use? God's standards are so high. I've already failed him so many times. I don't have a chance. That would be true, but for the fact that through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, servers, you can go get ready right now, okay? Get the emblems and just stand at the back. And the rest of you, just stay focused on, on what we're doing here. You can think the standards are so high. I failed so many times. I don't have a chance. And that would be true, except that God gives more grace. Realizing the demands of the relationship isn't a bad thing. Just like it's not a bad thing to go into marriage realizing the demands of faithfulness. That's not bad. That's good, right? You wouldn't want to go into marriage thinking faithfulness doesn't matter. That's no way to start a marriage. And it's no way to start a Christian life. And it's no way to live a Christian life with one foot in it and just dabbling. You know, you slog around to church once a month. Try and be a nice person and, you know, that'll be good enough. Would you accept that kind of devotion from your spouse? Usually I sleep with you. Maybe once a month I find somebody else. Yes, Christian life is demanding. But just like when you're faithful to the marriage, when you're faithful to the marriage... That's when you find the greatest joys of marriage. You just look around and find, find people like me, find people like me, who, and there's all sorts in this sanctuary, who were, who were virgins when they got married and have never had any sexual experience with anybody but one. And I'll tell you what, those are the people who get the most out of marriage. Always. And people who follow Jesus and follow him all in. Those are the people who discover gold in their walk with Jesus. I'm telling you the truth. Those are the people who discover gold. The people who, whenever the church doors are unlocked, they're there because they can't get enough. 
The people who constantly crack open their Bibles, turn off the TV because they want to learn more from God's Word. The people who spend time in prayer. The people who get involved in ministry. Ron was talking about it this morning. They're all in. And other people on the outside look at them and say, oh man, that Christian life is a lot of work. What a bunch of demands. And it's only because they don't know. They don't know. I have it on good authority. If you lose your life for his sake. What do you do? You find it. You find it. Everyone sad? Let's pray together.